I remember back when I was in college, um, I needed a job, all right? I needed to earn a little bit of money so that I could put gas in my car. So I got a job about 20 minutes away, Dayton, Ohio, at Ponderosa. Uh, Ponderosa. Um, it's, a, it's a steak chain. Uh, used to have over 300 uh, restaurants throughout the United States. Uh, as of 2022, there's uh, just over 30. <laughs> and uh, I worked at this place um, because, it well, they would hire me, basically. Uh, now, I got uh, really, pa- Jesus like captured my heart when I was in high school. And so I had uh, went off to college to study to become a youth pastor. It's what I wanted to do. Jesus had just kind of radically messed me up, transformed my life. And uh, I just wanted everybody that I knew to know this Jesus that had like really done a work in my own heart. And so working at uh, Ponderosa, I was like one of the uh, few people that I knew that was a Christian at the restaurant. And so I really cared about how I lived out my faith, uh, how I did my job, how I helped out my, my coworkers, because I wanted to, I wanted to be able to talk about Jesus. I want to be able to talk about the gospel, this good news that, that had like made this massive difference in my own life because I wanted them to experience it as well. And so uh, I remember uh, one particular day, um, one of my coworkers, uh, we were both, uh, uh, she was a waitress, uh, I was a waiter, and she had this four top, and uh, the people seemed nice enough. They were not rude. I wouldn't know they were the nicest either, but a decent four top. At the end of the time, though, um, I'd kind of overheard a little bit of their conversation as I was in, and I thought they might be Christians. So my friend had been waiting on them, and they uh, left, and when she went over to the table to, to clean it up, um, she uh, saw this. It was a $20 bill that they had left, along with some change. Uh, I think it was like whatever had come back from their, when they paid their check, like 67 cents, something like that. And um, she was like pretty excited, and so was I, because I've been talking to her about what it means to follow Jesus, and here are some Christians, and they, I mean, 20 bucks back in 1995, I mean, that was like half the cost of the meal. That was a big tip. And so she was pretty excited about that too, and she grabbed it, and she began to open it up, and this is what she found. A gospel tract. Don't be fooled. There's something you can have more valuable than money. And it was amazing. She instantly believed in Jesus and gave her life to Christ right then. It was this unbelievable moment of repentance, and uh, the, the track went on. If you flipped it over to the other side, it said, some things are better than money like your eternal salvation. I'm trying to preach the gospel to my friend. And these folks tried to preach the gospel to her as well. Very different ways that we went about it. Uh, She literally, no joke, grabbed the change that was on the table ran to the door, and as they were driving away, threw it at them. <laughs> and I kind of didn't blame her. When was the last time you preached the gospel? Some of you are kind of breaking out in hives right now, just because I use the word preach, right? Like, preach, 
man, I don't preach nothing to nobody. Like, that's kind of what you're supposed to do, T. But, like, I don't preach. Unfortunately, Jesus actually said to us in the Gospel of Mark that we're supposed to preach the gospel to all creation. Now, I get it. Preach throws off all kinds of connotations that we don't like, right? It sounds like the dude with the bullhorn yelling about sin and hell and judgment and fire and damnation. And so we get a little bit weirded out by that word. But if we were to kind of modernize it, talk about your faith, share your faith, talk about this good news, preach, as Jesus said, the good news, even then we feel a little allergic, don't we? We, we would... We'd, we like what St. Francis of Assisi said, at least what he's quoted of saying. You guys ever heard this before? Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use... <laughs> yeah, a lot of you have heard it. Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. You're like, heck yeah, man, that's what I'm about. That's my life. Like when my neighbor's not looking, I go over and I mow his side yard. And I'm going to edge it so well down the driveway that he's going to know I'm a Christian and know that he needs Jesus too. And he's going to give us, right, you bake him cookies at Christmas. When you're driving down the road, you flash him that gospel smile. Right? And they, they just know, right? They know, like, oh, I, gotta, I, got, I need what he has. I'm going to give my life to Jesus right now. Here's the problem, though. St. Francis of Assisi never said that. That is not a quote he ever said, nor a quote he ever would say. In fact, quite honestly, if he heard you attributing that quote to him, he would Will Smith you. St. Francis didn't play. Because St. Francis understood that you cannot share the gospel without talking. There's no such things as sharing it and using words if necessary. Words are always necessary. You want to know something? That foretop that left that terrible, awful gospel track that actually did way more harm than it did good actually is a form of preaching. If you don't actually talk, you're not actually preaching, sharing, inviting. That's a terrible way to do it because there are terrible ways to do it. But if you never say anything, then you're never proclaiming the gospel at all. Uh, for the last number of weeks, we've been talking about what is the gospel. I started off in week one talking about how Jesus and the gospel writers were setting up two different kingdoms. You see, at the time of Rome and Caesar, Caesar was known as, in fact, was given the title of the Son of God. It was said that he was the one who ruled over the universe, actually brought the universe into being, had a gospel of peace, the Pax Romana. And so when the gospel writers and Jesus himself begins talking, he very much sets up a whose kingdom are you going to? To believe in? Whose kingdom are you going to inhabit? Who do you really believe is in control and has power and authority? The gospel writers made it very clear you got to choose. 
Are you going to believe in Caesar as the good news or Jesus as the good news? Uh, In Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, Jesus actually kind of launches his ministry in Mark's gospel with this. Verse 14, it says, after John, this is Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, the forerunner to Jesus, the one who announced that the Messiah was coming. It says, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, it's in the northern part of Israel, proclaiming the good news or the gospel of God. The the Greek word there is euangelion. Gospel is what it's usually translated as. In this case, in the NIV, they just translate it as good news because that's what gospel means. It just means good news, a proclamation of good news. So after John's in prison, Jesus goes to Galilee and he proclaims what? The gospel of God. You want to know what the gospel of God is? Jesus is about to tell us. This is it. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God has come near. Now, if you're a Jewish Jewish person in Galilee, you think you know exactly what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the arrival of the Messiah, the one that they've been waiting for. You didn't even have to be a very good Jew to know that they were looking forward to the Messiah. They wanted somebody who was going to come in and rule on an earthly throne all of the world. Kind of similar to how David had, but actually extend even farther, even greater. They were looking forward to this, especially at this time, because Rome is controlling all of Israel. They're under the boot of Rome and Roman oppression. And they're like, please, we need a Messiah. We want a Messiah to come and kick Caesar's butt. Like they were so, and Jesus says, the kingdom of God, the gospel of God, the good news, the proclamation is that that time has come. If you're a Jewish person, you're so confused by this. You mean the time has come? Like you mean it's coming? Like you mean you're about to do this thing? Like it's, it's like about to start, it's about to pop off? Like you're about to bring some angels, you're going to raise up a big army? Like what, like what do you mean it has come? Because at this point, they're still very much under Roman oppression. You see, what Jesus was alerting everyone to is that his kingdom was bigger, better than what they had anticipated and thought, and not just for them, but for us as well. Jesus was helping us understand that his kingdom was not of this world, but it encompassed this world. His kingdom was not of this world, it encompassed this world. Now, uh, what that meant is that Jesus was actually in charge. Not only was Jesus in charge, but Jesus was the one who had the authority to continue the work that God had begun at creation. Now, uh, Jesus' kingdom was very different than the kingdoms of the world, though. Uh, Jesus actually talks about this. Uh, His kingdom was what uh, theologians call upside down, or it flows backwards. So Jesus doesn't destroy his enemies. Instead, he dies for his enemies. 
He's a king that doesn't live to be served, but who lives to serve. He's a king who turns the other cheek, walks the extra mile. He obeys the Father, even when it doesn't make sense to the rest of the world. See, Jesus' kingdom is different. The first are last. The weak are strong. This is the kingdom that Jesus was proclaiming. At the time, it was really, really hard for people to buy. In fact, even Jesus' own disciples. Throughout Jesus' ministry, in the three years he was with them, they kept expecting and hoping that he's going to set up. He kept telling them, look, my kingdom's not of this world. He's trying to explain that his kingdom was spiritual, that it was bigger and better than anything that they could have even imagined. And we still get to the very end of Jesus' life on earth, the day or the night he's betrayed and is going to be crucified the next day. And Peter, I love Peter. Peter's my dog because he's an idiot. <laughs> he's passionate, says stuff before he should, is always sticking his foot in his mouth, doing crazy stuff. That's my guy. He makes me feel like I'm not alone in the world. And Peter is so sure that Jesus is the Messiah and that Messiah has to set up the earthly kingdom that he always wanted that when Jesus Arresters come to take him away. Peter pulls the sword and tries to chop homeboy's head off. Now he misses and just catches an ear, but still, like, that's still pretty awesome. Like, my guy, like, he's out there. He's about it, right? Ride or die. He's not playing around. And Jesus is like, bro, put the sword away. Those that live by the sword are going to die by the sword. Jesus is saying, that's not what I'm about. I've got something bigger. And then, then, the audacity of Jesus, he picks up dude's ear and puts it back on his head. <laughs> what? You're going to use up a miracle for that? How about you use up a miracle to kill Caesar, take over the throne? Jesus was trying to show us that his kingdom, the good news, was way better way bigger, more expansive than anything anyone could have understood. Austin mentioned this last week. Last week. He said, um, the gospel is the story of God from start to finish, and it is for anyone and everyone all of the time. And I love that. What Austin helped us see is that the gospel is actually much wider and deeper than what we usually think of it as. And I felt this myself as I've been studying and writing these messages. Quite honestly, uh, the message I was supposed to give today, I'm going to give next week. It's about the four Protestant gospels. And it's going to tick some of you off. And I'm not writing or saying it to try to tick you off. I'm trying to do it because I want to pastor us as a church, so we can understand the depth and breadth. But I felt what Austin felt. Last week, he's like, yo, I wrote two messages trying to do this one. He's like, if you didn't like the one I'm preaching today, just send me an email, I'll give you the other one. I feel the same way today. Because as I've begun to engage with what the gospel actually is, this good news, it's wider and deeper than anything I even imagined. And I've been a pastor for a long time. What I realized is way too often I've taken the gospel and I've created a shorthand for it, and most of us have. And I've kind of just said the gospel is, well, it's, that's 
when Jesus died on the cross and then he rose back to life. And if you pray a prayer and, and invite him in in belief that uh, you get a ticket to heaven. And it is that. But it's not only that. The gospel is the story of God and his love for humanity and how he desires to redeem us. How he wants to come in and heal what's broken. How he wants us to learn how to worship him in spirit and truth. Helps us understand what grace and truth are because when grace and truth kiss love, pure love actually goes out into the world. That's why Jesus could say he was love, that God is love because Jesus the only person to ever be full of grace and full of truth. If the gospel's going to go out, that good news that is wider and deeper than we could ever imagine, it only goes out through us. Uh, Jesus actually talked about this when he talked about the gospel. And I was thinking about like, all right, what is it that we're supposed to tell people? What are we supposed to say? What's the good news that we're supposed to proclaim? And how are we supposed to proclaim it? And what I realized is $20 bill tracks are the best way. So when you leave today, everybody's going to, I'm just kidding. Let's start with what Jesus said. It's always a good place to start in church, right? If somebody asks a question, you don't know the answer. Jesus. Jesus said in Mark chapter 16, verse 15, I mentioned this earlier, the very end of Mark's gospel. Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. That's why there's a famous story of Augustine going and preaching to the birds the gospel, the good news of Jesus. I think I'm going to try that next time I'm out in the woods. I want to tell the world that the day is coming when that will be restored and it won't need to groan out anymore. John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. So there's something about going and being sent in how we proclaim the gospel. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which is kind of uh, the end of Jesus' story in the gospel of Luke. Luke actually writes the gospel of Luke as well as Acts. It's kind of like a two-part story that we split into two books. And Jesus is still around at the very beginning of Acts. And Jesus says, you will receive power when the Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. He basically says, here, there, and everywhere. So we're supposed to be witnesses, basically just like what you would do if you were in court. And they're like, what did you see? And you tell them what you saw. What did you hear? Well, this is what I heard. What did you experience? This is what I've experienced. That's all a witness does. Witness doesn't have to make stuff up. A witness doesn't have to like know things and get tested. And just talk about what you've seen, what you've heard, what you've experienced. Matthew chapter 28. This is probably the most famous because we call this the Great Commission. When Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. All right? So Jesus is like, look, look, I raised from the dead. The Father has given me all authority. I'm the king in heaven, outside, and on earth, right here, where everybody thinks Caesar is the one in charge. He's like, no, no, no. I got all authority, and here's what I'm doing with it. I'm giving it to you so you can go and make disciples. Make disciples of all nations. And the way we do that is we baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we teach them to obey everything that God, Jesus, had commanded. 
And he promises that he's going to be with them to the very end of the age. And that promise isn't just for the disciples who were there that night. That promise is for you and I too. How does he do that? He does that by giving us the Holy Spirit who indwells us, God himself. Man, that is, blows my, like I try to think about this sometimes and I'm still like, how is it that God himself lives indwell, inside? Like, come on, man. The same God that raised Christ from the dead, the one who has all power and authority, lives in me. That's a gift that I, I will admit I don't fully understand. I got a long way to go, but I want to know more. So what was this gospel that Jesus preached? And how are we supposed to then live it out? It's very simple. In Mark, Jesus simply said it's a proclamation that the kingdom of God is here. It has started, but it has not been finished. This is what theologians call already not yet. So we live while the kingdom is started, but it is not finished. Jesus promised that he's going to return one day. He's going to make all things new, wipe away all tears. As C.S. Lewis says, he's going to make all sad things come untrue. But it's been started. It started when Christ started his ministry, even before his death and resurrection. He was the king then. And he proved it through his death and his resurrection. And he's still the king today. And so we're supposed to go and make disciples who are baptized into this family, into this kingdom. And we're supposed to do this by telling the lost about Jesus, teaching them to obey everything he taught. And we remind ourselves that one day he's going to return and fix everything that's broken. And until that time, we're supposed to proclaim, talk about to other people that Jesus is king and his kingdom is available to anyone who will believe. Now, some of you might feel a little uncomfortable with one of the words that I just used. Don't call them lost people. Come on, Torin, you should know better than that. Ah, it's so demeaning. Sometimes in our context, it can feel that way. The problem is Jesus actually used that language. He actually said he came to seek and save the lost. And I actually think Calling someone who is far from God lost is not demeaning. I actually think that it's rather dignifying. I think it's a dignifying way of actually talking about somebody who's far from God. Uh, because being lost doesn't make you immoral. Being lost doesn't make you stupid. Being lost doesn't make you bad. It just simply means you're lost. I was at a Peace Park over in, I don't know, Ada, Lowell, something like that. And it's like all these trails... And I pulled into the parking lot, and I, and I parked my car, all right? And uh, I left my phone in there because, you know, the ruthless elimination of hurry and all that. And I went for a walk. And there's all kinds of, like, signs and colors and uh, maps all over the place inside the park that, like, tell you where to go. And I thought I was following them so well. But I'm out there just chilling and walking and hiking and enjoying myself, and it was a beautiful day. And all of a sudden, I was like, oh, this, is, this looks kind of familiar. This is what leads back to where my car is. And I kept walking, and it wasn't coming up. And next thing I know, I'm at a road. I don't even know what road, but it definitely wasn't where I showed up. And I didn't know if I was supposed to go right or I was supposed to go left. I really had no idea. So I took a guess. I went left came to another road. I was like, I think that might have been the road that I was on, but I wasn't real sure, so I made another left, and eventually, after about two miles, I found my car again. I got lost. 
And it's not because I was immoral or bad or stupid. I just got turned around, mixed up. I didn't read the signs right. And there's a whole lot of folks in our world that I think feel that way. Um, there's a guy, his name is David Foster Wallace. He's a, a pretty famous author. He died back in 2008. Took his own life when he was 46 years old. Uh, he was uh, just recently had been given an uh, award. Time magazine said that he was, had written one of the top 100 books of the last 100 years. One of the few people that was actually alive when they talked about this. And just a few days before he died, he, he gave an interview. And he said this. Back in 2008, he said, I wanted to write something about what it's like to live in America today. There's something particularly sad about it. Something that doesn't have very much to do with physical circumstances or the economy or any of the stuff that gets talked about in the news. It's more like a gut-level sadness. You see it played out in 20 different ways, but it's the same thing. Whether it's unique to our generation, I really don't know, but it's a real American type of sadness. I'm white, upper middle class, obscenely well-educated, and had way more career success than I could have legitimately hoped for, and still, I was adrift. He said, a lot of my friends were the same way. Some of them were deeply into drugs. Others were unbelievable workaholics. Some were going to singles bars every night. I see it in myself and my friends in different ways. It manifests itself as a kind of lostness. It manifests itself as a kind of lostness. David Foster Wallace, to the best of my understanding, didn't know Jesus. But he had gotten to the top and realized that it was still empty. And so many of his friends were looking for meaning in all the wrong places, all these American gospels. All these places that America says, if you do this, that's how you're going to find success. That's how you're going to find fulfillment. That's how you're going to find belonging. What are those American gospels? Take a second. I want you just to think about that. What are some of the things that America says, if you do this, you're going to actually find fulfillment. You're going to find life. Take a second and just turn to the person or people next to you, around you, behind you. and just say, What are some of those American gospels that you hear talked about all the time? Go ahead and share something with the person next to you. I'll give you a second. So I took some time and I started thinking about this myself. What are those American gospels? Those things that America trumps is like great news, things that you need to hear. Trumpets, not trumps. Is that a Freudian slip maybe? I don't know. Here's some that I thought of. The gospel of upward mobility. The gospel of upward mobility. If I get that better degree, or if I can kind of make some better friends, get into that better network, then I'm going to be able to get that better job, and then I'm going to be able to get that better house. If 
I can get that better salary, which is going to give me better status. Finally, I'm going to have arrived. I'm going to feel like I've made it. If I can just get there, I'll be fulfilled. It's a gospel that America has been trumpeting for decades, hundreds of years, the gospel of upward mobility. Now, I don't think that upward mobility is necessarily a bad thing. It doesn't have to be. Uh, there's a reason that folks all over the world would love to be able to move to America. Not everybody, but there's a whole lot of folks that would love to be able to live here. Um, what do they say? Where the rich eat, there's more leftovers. Even people that uh, act like they hate this country still don't want to move anywhere else. Upward mobility has some nice things when you can better your station in life, but the problem is, is it always leaves you empty. It will never fulfill. How do we know that? Because we've heard people who have been there say this time and time again. Do a quick Google search, and you will find Eric Clapton, Russell Brand, the actor Tony Hale, Lady Gaga, the list goes on and on and on. People who have been to the very top had everything that they ever hoped for, and they got there, and they found that it was more empty than what the pursuit was itself. The gospel of upward mobility will not fulfill you. The American gospel of sexual freedom will not fulfill you either. If I can sleep with whoever I want to, people think, then I'm finally going to feel free. I'm finally going to feel fulfilled, if I can fulfill all the fantasies that I have, I'm actually going to experience and have my desires finally be met. But the more sexual freedom that one pursues, the more one actually finds themselves lonely and enslaved. It's a false gospel. It's not good news. It too is empty. Sex was created by God to create a one flesh union, not a one night stand. And we know it. We know it because no matter how much you have, it will never leave, it will always leave you empty. The gospel of consumption, that was another one that I think about when I think of America. Uh, Rashida Graham Washington and Sean Castleberry wrote a, a book called Soul Force. I don't know if they're um, followers of Jesus or not, but they said that there are three core tenets to the gospel of consumption. They said, we're created to consume. That's one of the core tenets that the gospel of consumption will tell you over and over and over and over and over again. That's why you exist. You exist to take things, to consume things. And the second tenet is that we're meant to be passive. You're not supposed to think about what you're doing. You're just supposed to do it. Enjoy it. And the third thing is that your sole duty is to consume more. Reminds me of Andrew Carnegie when someone once asked him, who at the time when he was the richest man in the world, they said, uh, do you have enough money? And he said, no. Nobody had more money than him. And they said, how much would be enough? And he says, just a little bit more. It's empty. We consume and consume thinking that that's going to make us happy, and yet it never does. Another gospel that I think is new is the gospel of likes or the gospel of fitting. Let me explain what I mean when I say the gospel of fitting. It's the idea of fitting in. Who's my tribe? Who are the people that are going to accept me? Notice I didn't call this the gospel of belonging or acceptance because it's not actually real. It's more about fitting rather than belonging. It's not about acceptance. It's about likes. So to be fit, right, to fit in or to 
be liked. You've got to look right, talk right, think right. Don't show the real you. Don't disagree on anything. And don't screw up. Because if you fail on any of those things, at best, you're going to no longer be liked. And at worst, you're actually going to be canceled. Cancel culture eats its own. It's an untenable gospel. The gospel of fitting is whatever grace and genuine love is not. Now, we could go on. I could talk about all kinds of different American gospels. The, the gospel of guns, the illusion that they can protect me. The gospel of sports, the illusion that they can give me glory. The gospel of control, the illusion that that can give me safety. The gospel of equity, the illusion that that can give me fairness the gospel of freedom, the illusion that I'll have opportunity. Now, some of these things that I just mentioned are actually good things. If you're a follower of Jesus, God cares about biblical justice. We have to as well. But if you think that that's going to fulfill you outside of Jesus, you're going to be sorely, sorely disappointed. John Mark Comer, who you all know I have a massive man crush on, pastor out in Portland, Oregon, and he quoted this. He said, the gospels can be summed up under the banner of consumer, or excuse me, under secularism. If you want to kind of give it an overarching term, the gospel of secularism is the gospel of America. And this is what he said. He said, the bankruptcy of secularism is being exposed. Individual human rights, freedom, money, and the ability to have sex with whoever you want, it turns out, is not enough to live a deeply meaningful life. It is bankrupt soil. You cannot thrive in it over a lifetime. Now, let me stop mid-quote to simply say this, okay? I think people in our city, here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in 2022, are beginning to feel that more and more and more. I don't think there's ever been a time where people realize this more. You look around and things are just broken and messed up and it doesn't matter what we do to try to fix it. It doesn't seem to work. In fact, in many ways, it often seems to get worse. Problems that we thought we had fixed 100 years ago are now rearing their ugly heads again because they never were actually fixed to begin with. Because simply putting a government program in place or getting people to think differently about an issue doesn't actually get to the root of the problem. That's why I think that Grand Rapids is more ripe for preaching the gospel than ever before. Now, I'm not saying people are going to run up to you with kisses and flowers, but I am telling you that more and more folks recognize that what they've been going after in secular society is not meeting what they hoped that it would. John Mark goes on, he says, there's another narrative about what's good and beautiful and true, talking about the gospel of Jesus. There's another hope for salvation. There's another dream for the future that is somehow the best for all our collective dreams for the future, yet somehow transcends them and subverts them at the same time. That's what the gospel of Jesus does. It transcends even your wildest hopes. And it subverts all these other gospels and throws them on their head where the, the weak one is the strong one, where the one serving is actually the greatest. It's what Jesus wants to be able to preach to the world and what he expects you and I to preach to the world. So how does Jesus seek and save the lost? How does that gospel message actually go out in a world that's dying to hear about it? Through you, and you, and you, and you, and you, 
and you, and you, and you, and a bunch of you are trying not to make eye contact with me right now because you're like, he's going to point at me. Through every single one of us, that's how the gospel actually has to go out, by those who are willing to speak it, to say it, to preach it, to live it, to show it. It will not happen. It will not go out if we don't say it. And can we be honest? The reason you're here is because someone in your life was courageous enough to share it with you. Somebody shared it with you. For me, it was my mom. My mom was here at the last service. On Mother's Day, I can say, it was my mom that knelt with me when I was five years old at her nasty brown couch in Oak Lawn, Illinois, and helped me pray to receive Jesus. I'll admit I didn't understand all of it at that point. And even when I got into middle school and high school and really started to run away from God and wanted nothing to do with God, my mom continued to live out a faith and talk about a faith that was real and consistent. And God used her along with some other folks who spoke the gospel, the good news, the whole story of God to me. And so as a sophomore, junior in high school, God just captured my heart. And all I cared about was telling other people about what I had learned, what I had seen, what I had experienced. I was willing to preach the gospel, not in a preachy way, but in a way that just said, I'm a witness to this, man. I can't help but talk about it. Jesus captured my heart. And so when we talk about this, we have to remind ourselves that the gospel is for everyone and anyone, but it's nothing if you don't preach it and proclaim it. So there's two people that you're supposed to proclaim the gospel to. The first one that you need to preach the gospel to is yourself. Uh, I was uh, reading this past week. I was on uh, a silent retreat down in Three Rivers. I was reading this book called Deeper, Real Change for Real Sinners by this guy named Dane Ortland. And it's a terrible looking book. It's like the worst cover. I didn't even like the title. But somehow I picked it up and I started reading it. And oh my goodness, did my soul need it. One of the things he said in one of the chapters that I couldn't get out of my mind is that you never graduate from the gospel. You never graduate from the gospel. If you want to grow in Christ, you have to preach the gospel to yourself every single day to be reminded that it's not about you. It's not about how good you are, how much you do, how well you measure up. It's all about what Jesus has done that Jesus has paid the penalty of your sin in the past and your sin right stinking now and the sin that's in the future. And the more that you begin to preach the gospel to yourself, the more you realize how amazing it is that God has done that and continues to do that and that he doesn't push us away. He continues to draw us in. That one of his favorite things to do is to forgive his children who come back to him. That's like what he lives for. It's literally his job right now. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is interceding for you and I. Preach the gospel to yourself. Make sure that you remember it. Believe and understand how amazing it is because the more you begin to understand how amazing it is, the more you won't be able to shut up about it to everybody else. And that's the second person you need to preach to. Preach to the people in your life. Once you preach to yourself, preach to the others around you. It might be people in your house. It might be people in your neighborhood. It might be people at your school. I don't know who it is, but who is the person God has put in front of you? You got to live it out and you got to talk it out. The gospel is a proclamation that Jesus can change anything. 
you never know who's ready to hear it. Uh, there's a girl who comes to this church. Her name's Abby. Um, Abby uh, goes to Grand Valley. She's a student athlete. She's on the cheer team. And last year, when classes were virtual, she was in a Zoom class with another girl. I don't even know who this girl's name is. I've met her once, but I couldn't, couldn't remember her name. And uh, at the end of this Zoom class, this girl messages Abby and says, Hey, um, I'm, I'm looking to try to get connected to a church again. I haven't been going for a long time. Uh, would you like to come with me? Now, here's why she asked Abby. She noticed in the Zoom class that Abby had a necklace with a gold cross on it. Abby, I don't think, had been to church in years. Didn't grow up going to church. Didn't have any desire to go to church. This was just jewelry. Didn't mean anything at all. But this girl saw her and saw that and just said, I'll take a risk. And what she didn't know is that Abby's life wasn't going as well as Abby had wanted. And Abby was feeling like something was missing. And because this girl said, would you like to come to church with me? She said, absolutely. She said, I have no idea where to go. I don't go to church. And somebody from TLC had told this other girl, hey, you should check out this church in Grand Rapids. We're 25 minutes away from Allendale. It is not easy to get here for all of our Grand Valley students. And yet that Sunday they showed up. And the girl started continuing to grow in her faith, and Abby started to ask questions about faith for the first time. Abby began to hear more about Jesus, hear more about what this good news is, and started to build a relationship with Christ. And this past semester, she went through a Bible study with the Hewitts here at our church and committed her life fully to Jesus as a disciple of his. She loves this place. Why? All because a girl saw that she was wearing a cross necklace and got up the courage to say, would you like to come to church? That's preaching the gospel. It's a small way, but it is a very real way. If she would have just tried to be nice to the girl on Zoom, that wouldn't have went anywhere. Friends, we've got to be people who preach the gospel because you never know who's ready to hear it. Father God, let us be a people who first and foremost preach the gospel to ourselves so that we can be reminded of how amazing you are and how amazing the work is that you've done, the finished work of Christ on the cross. Jesus, thank you for your gift, your sacrifice. Father, thank you for giving us your son and thank you for sending the spirit to indwell us. Holy Spirit, teach us more of yourself. Let us know you better recognize your voice that we might follow and obey you and understand the word of God more and more so that we can live it out, proclaim it, preach it, so that more folks like Abby will finally have an opportunity to understand that everything that their soul is longing for, that their heart desires, that they have been pursuing is only found in you. Let us be that church, Jesus, we ask in your name. Amen.